Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Tim Jackson, the author of a new book called Prost Growth, Life After Capitalism. Previously the author of Prosperity Without Growth, and he's a professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey and director of a very vigorous institute called the Center for Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity. Tim, thanks for joining me. Thanks for being here today. It's a, it's a pleasure, Rob. Glad to be with I, you. I just have to say, in, in reviewing the manuscript for your book, which I know has just come out in England, will be out in the United States on May 21st, I'm very inspired. Thank you. Because I'm always looking. First of all, we're in a world where, which you might call the conventional wisdom appears to be in tatters. And secondly, it's not enough to just tear apart what is because people become afraid in a void. They want to see light at the end of the tunnel or maybe not clarity and certainty, but a pathway to exploring to a healthier, more sustainable life for them, for them and their children. And I feel like as I went through your book, looking backward at different building blocks of philosophy, looking at different periods, transition, and looking forward, that you're just right in sync with what the doctor ordered for this next phase. So Tim, this book, as I say, is very inspiring to me. What was, what's in your mind, what's in your heart as you decided to impart this to the world? Um, so you, men you mentioned the, an earlier book that I'd written called Prosperity Without Growth. And uh, I wrote that originally when I was economics commissioner for uh, the UK Sustainable Development Commission. So it was written, if you like, the commission actually reported to the prime minister of the UK at the time. And, and it was written really for a policy audience. It was written as a policy document. And it talked about the, the predicament, if you like, of, of, uh, of our economy, which has as its goal continuous expansion and yet lives and has to survive on a finite planet. And, and it did so in a very science-based, uh, statistics-based, policy-based way, um, because I was, I was trying to grapple with that predicament and make predictions for the kinds of policies that would help us in the future. And it was an odd publication because it, um, the, the people for whom it was written, and I, I have to say this with all candor, were not widely accepting of its message. And indeed, in some cases, it was as though they wished that their advisors had not advised them um, along these particular lines. So it didn't get a warm reception from policymakers. But the thing, and it was very humbling at the time in a way, because it, it got a huge reception from, from the non-policymakers. It got a, a wide reception from a whole range of of you know, unused suspects. It wasn't just environments, for example, financiers and entrepreneurs and, and literary societies. And I gave talks in, in theatres. I, I went to the UN at certain times. I talked with parliamentarians in different contexts. Um, and But these this audience were not really, I suppose, the people that I had written the book for. And... Um, and I began to realize that, that actually this audience was even wider than originally supposed. And, and post-growth came from a very specific conversation with a young man who had read Prosperity Without Growth and actually had decided on the basis of reading Prosperity Without Growth to give up his job. And he decided to, to give up his job and send an email to the entire company saying that he was giving up his job on the day that I arrived at that company to give some advice about sustainability. So it was, 
it was a kind of uh, thanks. I'm not quite sure how I should do that. Fortunately, the company was was very good about it. But I I asked to meet this young man and I and I had a conversation with him, and and he convinced me really that you know what I had written about in post in prosperity without growth had a wider, uh, more interested audience perhaps than the policy audience for whom I'd written prosperity growth. And he told me you know, you should write this book for these people. And so really the idea of writing a book for that wider audience about that fundamental dilemma is where post-growth came from. And and it was, you know, it was kind of, it was outside of my comfort zone sense because I'm I'm an academic and I write broadly for academic audiences and for policy audiences. And as you say, I, I have this, this playwriting background, but I'd never really brought it into my work, um, and and so post growth really was was partly bringing two sides of me together, but also doing it with the very specific of fulfilling a mandate from one of my audience who felt that I should be talking about these things in a more accessible way to a wider audience. Yeah. Well, you know, many people uh, talk about left and right brain or they talk about various different uh, ways or languages that people become reassuring or convincing or inspiring. But the uh, notion that I've seen often in reference to the environmental sustainability is that that notion of unlimited growth just, it, it made sense when the Earl of Lauderdale said to Adam Smith, what do you mean price equals value? You need oxygen and you need water or you die and they're priced at zero. But the population was small in relation to the earth. Now the scarcity of clean or water that can support your health and oxygen, uh, as well as many other facets are in question. And, but, the, but these notions uh, of how would I say where new inspiration is coming from are what many people are now calling heart-minded inspiration that there's a kind of intuitive invitation that then leads you on to the creation of things which you communicate like you say as an academic but I think the playwright is bringing the heart to the table with the brain is what I'm, I'm insinuating. Uh, I, I, I hope that I hope that's what's happened. I mean, I guess there was there was something else in my mind as I was doing that, which was which was around the people in the book because post growth is a book where I have I've used a lot of the the stories, the narratives, the ideas the thought worlds of other people. And, and I consider these people in some ways to be my intellectual heroes, to be my intellectual guides, my mentors over quite a long period of, of time. And, and so that was another thing that I wanted to do. I wanted to kind of suggest that in the conundrum in which we find ourselves, this, this paradox of, of the human condition on a finite planet, that we have in our support we have a huge legacy of of very insightful thinking from some quite amazing people and i think that's something that often goes missing in the current debate you know everything is kind of geared around the latest twitter storm from whatever the new kid on the block has to say and, and i really wanted to ground our, our endeavor at this point in time, this search for a different kind of economy and a different kind of society, a different kind of world, I wanted to ground that in the thinking that had inspired me, which goes back, you know, not just a few years, not even a few decades, but actually centuries. And, and to suggest that actually the thought worlds that were captured by these intellectual heroes are as relevant and perhaps more relevant today than than they have ever been and they they present a kind of a resource for us i think as we as we go about figuring out what kind of society we want for our kids yeah and, and people like ruskin and uh, wordsworth and others seem to be chafing at the what you call mechanistic 
visions at an earlier time when there was the debate in economics uh, around the time of Karl Marx. I remember reading a wonderful history book by Mary Ferner called Advocacy Versus Objectivity, where the marginal revolution and the mechanical representations, uh, which you might call calm the waters about distributional tension. So we can see these things going in and out and oscillating, but the way you're accumulating things uh, kind of reminds me, I, I had a, an inspiration in my own life uh, when my children, my children now in their 30s, were in school and the nature writer Peter Matheson came and spoke. He had gone to the same school as a child as my children were at, and he talked about a book called The Tree Where Man Was Born. And it was essentially ground centered in Tanzania. And we as a family went there and everybody talks about the circle of life and the animal life and it's wonderful to learn about. But he suggested, he nudged us to go with the Hadza who were not farmers, not business people, but the hunter gatherers. That's funny. And just experience their lives, which yeah. we did for about nine days as we wandered with them and it felt to me like I sensed a different kind of joy and curiosity and confidence among those people than anybody I'd ever experienced and I, did, I, did, I didn't take it anywhere but when I was reading your book images from that trip came up to me over and over again. Yeah and, and I think I think that was a part of, of what I wanted to do is that is to open up what has sometimes become a kind of narrowed down thought world, a narrowed down ideology, and and say, look, there are all these wonderful insights from 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 many many hundreds of years that are poetic in nature, that are inspirational in their sense of guiding us as a as a, a a, you know, a species of animal that lives for time on a finite planet forever in lockdown in some uh, sort of metaphorical way. And and coming to terms with that is, is a part of, of how we create vision in society and how we think about social progress. Mm -hmm. And you talk a lot in the book about how narratives... I remember seeing a, doc, uh, a diagram about uh, novelty and tradition, self and other, and how the paradigm that we had, we had been living in novelty and self, which was essentially the propulsion to Schumpeterian-like dynamics and growth, technical change, expanding the production possibility frontier. But you, you did a very nice job of saying, that's just, that's just one pathway and there are all kinds of other ramifications and side effect and living a virtuous life isn't always contained in that quadrant. I think that I think that's right and and in the same token that it created uh, you know a Schumpeterian paradigm enterprise it also created a consumerist narrative to support that in which we began to see ourselves as you know it's Un, un, insatiable novelty-seeking selfish hedonists driven by you know some form of rational self-maximization at its heart and and the work that 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 quadrant diagram that you talk about i think it's a lovely piece of work it's by a psychologist called shalom schwartz who explored those tensions between self and other and between novelty and tradition and, and found actually that both of those characteristics, all four of those characteristics, are present in the human psyche in, in different concentrations, in different places and in different cultures. Um, but what always struck me about it, as you say, is how we had almost forced, in economics in particular, forced our vision of ourselves into that one novelty-seeking selfish quadrant of the human heart. And in doing so, had had missed actually, you know, three quarters of who we are as human beings. Hmm. And that I would surmise, and this is just my conjecture, when you stay in that quadrant, cum cumulatively, the damage of the ignoring the other three quadrants starts to build, and which you might call reveals the incoherence or instability of that narrower mindset. I think that's true. I mean, you know, there's a lot. I came from a position 
as many as many of my colleagues did um, from from of of a sort of environmental awareness, if you like, of thinking about the damage that society is is reeking on a finite planet and and being concerned about it and being concerned about limits and talking about limits. Um, but as the more that I began to explore it, and I began to do this probably a little bit at least in Prosperity Race, and certainly in some of the work that we're doing in CUSP, it seemed to me there was a kind of double tragedy. You know, there's a tragedy in terms of what we're doing to the planet, and that is an awful thing to be doing. And there's also a tragedy, if you like, in terms of the exploitation that has sometimes occurred with, with the poorest in society. But the, and all of that is a kind of tragedy of the human heart that we've pursued this very materialistic vision of a consumer society to the detriment of the human spirit and i think that you know that diagram that shalom schwartz um, categorization of human values shows that to us very very clearly that that actually in becoming materialist in becoming obsessed with the concept of more we have never actually learned to identify our fullest human potential and and that actually paradoxically really it's it's the fact that we're limited that points us in the direction of that human potential it's the fact that we're limited in material and resource terms that points us to the opportunities for the expansion of the human spirit and and if we if we neglect that if we sort of say well no we're not interested in limits we can bust through these frontiers we can go as far as we want and we'll do it because we're incredibly clever we miss that opportunity so so i you know one of the things i wanted to do in post growth was to sketch that opportunity an opportunity for a fuller human potential, a richer vision of ourselves, a place where we're not narrowed down or, or almost, um, you know, persuaded to accept a, a standard view of what human beings are, but we're we're actually encouraged to explore that opportunity. There's a quote that I, I quite often use from Wendell Berry, who's a, obviously a very well-known U.S. conservator that limits properly construed should not be seen as constraints but as invitations to uh, fuller meaning and purpose and, and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful way of thinking about about limits that allows us you know not to transcend in the terms of ignoring them or to break through them with brute force but actually to take the idea of and ask where is their teaching for what it means to be human uh, and i think that that goes missing in consumer society that idea goes missing and i kind of wanted to reclaim that wendell berry uh wendell berry is on my pantheon of readers and my closest friend who uh for 47 years who passed away a couple of years ago inspired me when i was a fellow at the roosevelt institute in new york work where they give what are called the Four Freedoms Medals. And I nominated Wendell Berry and they chose him. And he came and had dinner with us and presented, but books like What Are People For? And all of his various books on poetry, the forward he wrote to the One Straw Revolution, a Japanese book about uh, the meaning of agriculture. He, he was a fan, he, he is a fantastic mind. Yeah, there's a wonderful sort of inc incisiveness, I find, and, and the, the inspiration from it, which comes very much from, you know, a real connection to the natural world and, and a learning through the natural world of, of what we are as human beings. And I, fi I find the way he writes fantastic. I, it's very inspiring to me. Yeah. So there are, as you've said, kind of antecedents to the mosaic that you're constructing. There are building blocks, there are signals. So somebody recently told me about a gentleman I've never met, uh, Irvin Laszlo. Uh, at a, it used to be a university called the Giordano. He's a Hungarian, but he's one of these people who seems to be very rigorous and scientific, but talking about which you might call in simple economics, the misspecification of our objectives. And uh, so I, I think maybe the way in which we're all being shaken up now has us searching for clues of how to get 
how to get out of this mess and your ability to synthesize. And as you said, as a scholar, I'm not trying to discredit the scholar because at some level, because of your gifts and understanding how those people process things and are persuaded, keeps them on board in the evolution. So it's not just like you were referring to in the social media. It's just not just the denigration of science and information because it's all false consciousness and, and bitterness and shrapnel. It's, it's, it's moving the tribe to a different level of awareness and collaboration that I think is the exciting potential. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the circumstances where we are at the moment actually been, you know, tragic, really, in, in human terms um, and salutary in, by any stretch of the imagination. You know, the kind of enormous lessons, I think, that the last year has, has provided us with. Um, you know, it is it will inevitably, because I actually started writing the book before the pandemic um, struck and 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 I was writing it actually through that first period of the of the emergence of the pandemic and the lockdown and the experience of people through lockdown and and as you say it was it, it was beyond the idea even of a once in a lifetime experience it was a kind of experience that many don't ever have in their lifetimes and it applied to all of us everywhere across the world and and I know it's not to trivialize it or not to trivialize the tragedy to say that that there was an enormous learning through that experience it did teach us certain things it it taught us certain things about the economy in particular and 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 you know at one level this is a book partly about the economy and about the kind of economy that we have and and in particular i think one of the tragic lessons from the pandemic was was how we allowed our economy to develop in a way, in, in a very particular way, such that a certain group of people had been very poorly treated, that they their livelihoods were precarious, their pay was very low, their working conditions were obvious, often very bad. And, and this sense of insecurity, which they had to live with their daily lives, was in existence for several decades, really, before the pandemic struck. And then, you know, the most curious thing and the, the most striking thing of all is that this set of people turned out to be the people that we needed most. They were the doctors and the nurses and the care workers and the delivery people and the people working in shops to provide for us. They were the people on the front line. They were the cleaners who suddenly you know, from being the most, almost the worst job in the world that you wouldn't wish upon your friends became this incredibly important job because of the way that the virus um, replicated and, and, and spread in our lives. And, and so it was very, it was so striking to me to see that this group of people who I'd been writing about as, as a part of the, those left behind by, um, by capitalist economics, how suddenly they became actually we began to see them for the worth the value that they have in society rather than from the wages that we don't wish to pay them because we can't be bothered with that kind of stuff and and behind that this the reasons that we couldn't be bothered with it is because it it didn't fulfill the the goals of productivity that capitalism and our modern economy is constantly chasing that idea of constantly chasing more output more efficiency more productivity from our workers year after year after year and these were the people for whom care and attention and time and dedication were the things that they were bringing to society and they are they are not things that you can chase out of the economy through efficiency drives they're, they're, they're things that you have to nurture and nourish and take care of and so at the heart of the book although there's a lot of stories in it there's also a very profound to me at least and and i hope that i've conveyed it a kind of profound message for a, a dysfunctionality at the heart of capitalism that has that has done damage to some of the most important valuable members of our community and to the services that 
they bring to us. And I think, you know, as a as a learning from from what we've been through in the last year, I think that's that's extraordinarily profound. I, I'm kind of worried that we're going to forget too soon. I almost want to keep saying it and keep saying it because I think there's a point at which we'll begin to forget it. When when the pandemic struck, I don't know if it was the same in the states, but we had you know, people out on their doorsteps clapping the health service at a certain time of night every week. Um, and, and then a few months ago, we had a, you know, we had a suggestion for how much pay increase we should give to NHS staff. And it was, it was minimal. It was less than the rate of inflation. It was, it was obscene, really, you know, and insulting that the very people that we had stood on the doorstep to clap were the ones that we were not prepared to reward and didn't know how to reward in, in the, the economic system that we devised. So there's a very, you know, to me almost, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be um, polemical about it in any in any very strong way because for me the essence of the book is to encourage conversation but I do feel quite passionately that that the the reform that economics needs at this point is fundamentally to replace to put that value the value of the carers the care economy if you like and craft and creativity those those occupations that that depend for their their effectiveness on the dedication of people's time to society to put them back at the heart of the economy where they belong. You know, as I listened to you and, and read the manuscript of your book, two things that resonate with what you've just been saying really came to the surface. One was there's a gentleman who's a professor, I believe, of sociology in the UK named Rogan Taylor. And I saw him give a lecture. I used to work in the music business. So it, it was called the Death and Resurrection Show from Shamanism to Superstar. And there was, I used to work on creating blues records, old brutes and blues. And so I was interested in that dimension. But as I listened to him, he took us through what did the original Siberian shaman or the Native American shamanic experience entail and it was you have to go through a hell of your own equivalent disruption or destruction or being torn apart go down and into that suffering you develop the sensitivity to come back from the underworld to the first world and then ascend ultimately to heaven and the point was that i was hearing as you were talking is how the pandemic as awful as it is, when that suffering emerged, it sends us all into that hell and that, that potential, not for denial, but for re-examination, greater sensitivity and a different vision coming out. The second part, and this came more from reading in your book, was the role of Native American thought, the, whether Black Elk Speaks or more critical things like uh, the Native American, the late Jack, Jack Forbes wrote a book called Columbus and Other Cannibals. Uh, he had a phrase they call wetiko about a certain evil compulsive disease that the Native Americans experienced when Western society came and took over the United States and pushed them around. And I, I sense that there was a great deal of um, reawakening to Native Americans, what I'll call spiritual philosophy, taking place yeah, I think in this that's, country um, right now. They're, they're seeing that as part of the guiding light. Mm, that, that's really good. I mean, I think, I think that, that we, we, again, it's a part of our sort of phenomenon of rushing forever onwards to the next new thing, that we believe that we are cleverer than everybody who came before us. And and that going back to that to some of that wisdom, I think is you know is incredibly important to us, particularly as we begin to realise how much we've lost our way in some in some sense. But your your other point also about you know about about suffering. I mean, it's a very uncomfortable one for modern society. You know, we kind of like to look the other way and pretend it's not happening and think of the brightness of the future and the opportunities of our young people and being the best self that you can be and 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 it is another theme in the book though because i think it's a and i think it's a really important one that that sense of 
of of facing up to suffering, facing up to the existence of suffering. You know, it comes at us from all sorts of places. When we begin to look and understand what capitalism is, you, you begin to find beneath it a kind of anxiety. And it's the kind of anxiety of keeping up with everybody else, for example, on the side of consumers, anxiety of, you know, capital flight and losing your markets if you're an entrepreneur. And and I, I was listening recently to, I was listening to a, a talk that Jeff Bezos gave um, and he has this thing about, you know, innovation always being, it, it's always day one for an innovative enterprise. When he gave this talk and he, and he said, you know, what, what does day two look like? Uh, I think I know the answer to this one. Day two is stasis followed by irrelevance, followed by a slow inexorable decline, followed by death. And that is why it's always day one. And of course, it's a lovely speech and his audience love it. And it does speak to some truth that, that being at day one is always, it gives you the ability to see everything afresh. But it also, that speech to me holds a kind of anxiety, you know, beneath the, the vision and the forward motion of the entrepreneur is the fear of decline and death. And it's a, it's a fear that, that in society as a whole, we tend not to want to confront. Um, but I think it's that it's it's our failure to confront it in some way. It's our failure to to face up to it. It's our failure to to kind of acknowledge it as a part psyche that drives us into the arms of of false dreams of forever thinking that novelty is the only way to go. Of 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 believing that the consumer dream that material affluence will 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 lead us to heaven if you like and and some of the work that that we've been doing in this in the center you know really was very surprising to me because it what it showed was that if you if you engage in this denial if you try to avoid this kind of suffering it takes up a certain amount of energy it takes up psychic energy to to continually paint this bright wonderful picture of the future and deny the dark side and and what taking that that energy does is it it reduces your own ability to engage in meaningful purposeful tasks that require your mental commitment and that was a fascinating insight to me because it sort of said in a way we also discovered that the more materialistic you are the more likely you are to avoid the dark side to, to you know to try to avoid that suffering and that avoidance of your suffering prevented you from experiencing the most fulfilling states that humans can experience when they're really engaged in a task and it one with the world you know really absorbed in what they're doing so that our materialistic societies in the same time that they're you know destroying the planet they are actually undermining our own ability to achieve our fullest human potential and 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 that was you know that was a, a kind of striking revelation to me uh, when our research uncovered this and and thinking through the implications of that was one of the things i you know i was trying to do in the book in my own uh, life i went through a transition in some very wise friends gave me a book by a man named Ernest The Becker Denial of Death. Called The Denial yes. of Death. And it really went down this, the same pathway that you were just describing. And then others who, the same group of people who I've known as the pandemic started, we had a reading group around Pema Children's book, When Things Fall Apart, which is a Buddhist perspective. And the second one uh, was... Tiki not, Tik Nhat Hanh, uh, a book called uh, Fear. And it was about how o overcoming fear is the only way you can be more alive. And I haven't done it, but the person who led that group said the next book you should read is the Tibetan book of living and dying. Because the only way you can get on course in amidst the anxiety that tempts you towards denial is to look these things in the it's, it's eye. It's a fantastic forward. insight. And it's a really extraordinary 
insight. It is. And it's, it's very it, one of the things, um, you know, Tish, Tish Nathan is one of the one of the people in the book whose ideas I explore. And he was very influential um, on my thinking at a certain point in time, particularly the way that he he talks about and thinks about power and what power is. And, you know, he, he, he really kind of contrasts a sense of power, which is cast in worldly terms of money and riches and wealth and political influence and telling people what to do with a sense of power, which comes actually through the learning um, that's, that's shown to us when we explore that fundamental question of of suffering and and it's what what that what that insight did for me is it kind of made me contrast this seems a very odd thing to do as i try to explain it to you but it made me in the book kind of try to contrast the the response of capitalism towards suffering and the response of buddhism towards suffering and what what's fascinating is that they actually start in the same place they sort of start by saying um suffering is inevitable that's the you know the first um, precept of buddha is that everything is suffering and capitalism kind of starts from the same place it sort of says everything is scarcity and that means that not everybody can have everything all the time and then and then they you know the, the responses diverge wildly from that point because capitalism kind of says um you know because everything is is suffering everything is a struggle life is a struggle for existence and it's only through competition that you can survive that struggle for existence and then competition suddenly becomes actually the most important principle in capitalism and buddhism goes a completely opposite direction it says you know everything is suffering the suffering comes from our cravings and therefore we should reduce our cravings and always increase our concern for other people particularly those who are suffering so you get this sort of divergence of world views one which has taken us to a hyper competitive capitalism of you know it's fine um that there are poor people suffering as long as i don't look at them and see them too much um on the one hand and and on the other hand a set of instructions for us to turn to warfaring, understand how much it's a common destiny, and sympathize with other people, connect with other people, and care for other people. And I found that, you know, I found that 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 vision, that Tishnat Han vision, I found that an extraordinarily powerful way of thinking uh, about where capitalism had had gone wrong, led us astray, if you like. Yeah, I know um, my friends who were involved in the Buddhist community had talked about what they called the yuppification of med- meditation. It became kind of a, a thing you did to be cool or what have you. Uh, and they described how Thich Nhat Hanh, in his book, Fear, this is before I read it, but I, I found it, talks about what he calls the Sangha, which is the group you meditate with and sometimes in walking meditation and the strength you get from the acceptance of others helps you to what you might call uh, diminish or dissolve some of the fear and allows you to be more present and i think sometimes like in a pandemic like when everybody's worried about food distribution systems or massive migration in equatorial regions because of global warming, the go it alone isn't going to work. How, how do we reduce the fear of others and become mm. partners in what I'll call the Sangha yeah. of climate change? And, uh, and I think these are these are profound challenges relative to the habit structure of the last. They, they are years. profound challenges, and but but I, again, I think in a way the existence of those, you know, those ideas and the longevity that those ideas have had. You know, I was kind of struck. I turned when I was writing it again and again to Lao Tzu, um, the Book of the Way, 
and and it's a you know it's one of those books also that informs the Buddhism of of Thich Nhat Hanh and and that sense that there is a you know if you like a a learning that we can engage in that we can you know throughout our lives not something we learn at school and then apply and then it's done and we get a good job and we forget about it but actually a kind of constant lifelong learning of staying on the path on path that leads towards other people that leads towards care of the planet that leads towards social progress that leads towards our own intrinsic being at the same time and I think and that was a very again a very attractive idea one that I came to and, and tried to articulate a little bit at the, at the end of the book because you know it struck me that we shouldn't neglect that that wisdom which is a wisdom from you know two and a half millennia ago Lao Tzu was writing around about two and a half millennia ago but it was a it was a wisdom actually that came from the learning of an extraordinarily successful civilization that precedes our modern civilization and precedes capitalism and is informed by uh, experiences, informed by thinking about the nature of the world and thinking about the human condition in, in a very profound way. And, and it, it influenced society, Chinese society, for example, over an extraordinarily long period of time as a, as a way of, of navigating the human condition. And I think that's, that's, you know, again, it's your earlier point about Native American wisdom, that the wisdom of earlier traditions is something that we should acknowledge for its insight, of course, but perhaps even more acknowledge for its relevance to the situation that we find ourselves in. And requiring what I would say uh, global cooperation across the tectonic plates of different philosophical systems, the Cartesian Enlightenment West and the Buddhist, Confucian, Taoist East are now both in the G20. Yeah, that's true. And they've got to sit across the table from each other and not project their own system onto the imagination of the person that they're trying to collaborate with. So I think some learning, particularly of the West about the East, will help for alignment there. Let me let me take you to a place, because I think we're at that place. One of the things the Institute for New Economic Thinking is very concerned about is education. And there's a, a, a woman, the late Jane Jacobs, her last book, which was published in 2004, was called Dark Age Ahead. The third chapter of the book was called Education versus Credentialization. And I'll paraphrase, these are not her words, but someone can go to school to get a label, a stamp, the skills to alleviate the fear of not being materially prosperous. On the other path, someone can go to school to become aware, a sense of what matters, become a citizen, work with others. I've been concerned that particularly American education and the rising tuition structures and all kinds of things are, are symptoms of that fear and that skill-based response to fear to be an input to production when what we need now in this world of collective work and externalities as economists call them and the need for public good we need the education of the citizen. And uh, I know I've been doing a work with some people around Pope Francis that uh, was inspired by his environmental encyclical Laudato Si, but the most recent one about people and working together. And his group has often talked about what we need now is what we call econo-civics, where it's not just the institutions of government which in many ways were demonized in America in the last 40 years. But all over the world, we need to understand the economic institutions and how they affect the well-being. And this has to be a high school level curriculum because most people on planet Earth don't go to college. And I'm, I'm the, I say this, I need your insights because 
the, they're really stirring the drink right now, whether it's at the Vatican or in the concerns about suicide and other mental illnesses at colleges rising. There are a lot of people who don't feel hopeful when they're there. And, and so where would you go with education, given the insights, say, for instance, in your, your new book? What, what, would, what kind of curriculum? Yeah, I feel very passionately about that. You know, one of, I mean, I start the book with the story of, of, um, of Robert Kennedy turning up at, at Kansas University. And, and basically, you know, he's, he's giving approval to a generation of students who have come out on, the ca on campuses across the United States to um, <clears throat> to protest what was at that point an enormous tragedy, the Vietnam War. <clears throat> and he sort of says to them, you know, the more riots there are across the campuses of America, the better. He's, he's sort of saying that there's a role for a kind of disobedience and that students should not be just sitting in the classroom, um, you know, becoming, if you like, if you like fodder, for a for a productive economy, and there's there's another there's another educationist who I really like Rosenstock Hussey, and he has this wonderful quote which is which I have actually on my wall. Um, the goal of education is to form the citizen, and the citizen is a person who, if need be, can found his civilization. And so this 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 you know we, we should be teaching our kids to be rebels is the kind of implication of that. And I think that is one of the things we, we should be always teaching that questioning. And that's what I try to do with classes that I teach at college. I mean, I less and less do I enjoy the lecture format where, you know, the bright enlightened professor stands at the top of the class and tells students what to think. And, and more, I try to bring that into my, into my, my teaching methods that these kids actually are the ones who have the critical perspective and that we should be encouraging that massively in our in our colleges in our schools in our in our universities but i think i also feel you know and this is quite a strong message i think that comes i hope comes through the book that this <clears throat> you know a part of that a part of that learning f for our kids and indeed for us throughout our entire lives should be a learning that allows us to, if you like, follow that path, that way that the ancient wisdom was suggesting. Not, not to reach a destination, but to continually be on that path, to keep ourselves on that path. And that path has certain qualities to it. One of the qualities that I talk about in the book is this quality of, of flow, where you are kind of immersed in task to the point where you and the task become one and, and you and the world become one. In the same token, you don't even exist. You're not aware of the passing of time. Your sense of your ego is diminished, but you're somehow engaged in this, in this process of flow in ways which can be profoundly inspirational at the private level, but also incredibly social and bring about the most amazing change. And, and one of the things that I feel that the casualties of a materialistic consumer culture that's focused on productivity is that we do not teach our kids that that state even exists, let alone its value or its meaning in society. And so I kind of, you know, I kind of have this, I have this idea that there's a form of education and it never stops, that is about us learning to achieve the fullest human potential and it, and it goes through these kinds of learnings that are around you know, prepared to look at suffering and it goes through these kinds of learnings that are prepared to to rebel at times and it and but it also achieves this ability of 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 human experience to feel connections in a visceral way with task with other people with the planet itself and I think, you know, a little bit of that in a very trivial way, perhaps, but in but I think in quite a foundational way was embedded in in the UK. Uh, we have something which was used to be called, I hope it'll still go on being called the Duke of Edinburgh scheme. 
which was something which the the late Prince Philip um, uh, installed when when he was quite a young man. And and it was kind of about giving kids at a certain age, around about 14, 15, a bit of that experience, a bit of experience in, in working in their communities, a bit of experience in developing a skill, a bit of experience in orienteering their way across the country so that they were immersed in in nature they were immersed in in society and they were immersed in their own skill development and i think you know i think in a way he had captured something there an essence of something which i think is it offers us you know not sackcloth and ashes as repentance for our consumerist lifestyle but actually a, a really inspirational place to be and, and something to aim for as human beings and as a society. And I think, you know, education for me should begin to begin to build that, um, not just for kids, as I say, but as a almost like an, a lifelong project. Yes, yes. I'm uh, reminded of a book, a gentleman from Indiana that I grew up in the state of Michigan and he's lived in Western Michigan for a time. His name was Jeffrey Nixa. And the book was called The Lost Art of Heart Navigation. And it was really... Fantastic. Uh, I'm, you're giving I'll, me so, I'll send, I'll send you so many lovely references. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's a very, uh, very touching. He, and this is a man with all kinds of credentials. Went to law school and was an outstanding undergraduate. And then he just said, this isn't my compass. And he went to this different place and then shares us with us in his book what that process looks and feels like and uh, but I think I think you're you're really bringing to life something I'll tell a little parable I have a, a friend and former neighbor who I used to go skiing with who is a billionaire and we were once skiing in Sun Valley Idaho and on the chairlift he looked at me and he started crying and he said, explain to me why when last month I was in Africa that all of those people were happier than me. And he, this wasn't glib. <laughs> it was really taking a bite out of him. Uh, he, he was not what you might call satiated or felt gratification of all his material power and security that that monetary base provided for him he knew there was something else and uh, as i was listening to you i i thought i wish he had met you when he was in his 20s or the next one I like him. him but that's yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's i mean i i think that i think that's you know that that idea uh that we can we can think of ourselves still, you know, for all the sometimes short-term alarmism that we face in relation to climate change, the, the threat to biodiversity. And obviously I'm, you know, we should, we're not, neither of us are sitting here minimizing that or minimizing the urgency of that. But, but within that urgency, I think it's really important to give people a sense of, of where hope lies and where social progress lies and and that is and this was the thing that struck me from Tishnat Han is that that is always available to us nobody can take that away from us it, it it's kind of something that is a a birthright but Rob I just wanted to ask you I don't I hope you don't mind me doing this but I just I didn't know that you're a music producer actually so I just wanted to ask you about you know, because it does seem to me, and the, and the book does a little bit of this, as you say, it sort of talks, it takes a poetic stance. And quite often through the writing of it, I almost wrote it with reference to to muses from different places. And, and because of the wonder of YouTube, you know, you can you can actually visit some of these muses in real, not, not in the day we're there, but you can sort of experience those moments where wonderful things happen. And there was one of those, there was one of those moments which I, which I used actually, I, I mentioned it in the, in one of the chapters of the book around 
the concert that Nina Simone gave a few days after the the assassination of Martin Luther King. Yes. And yes. I watched that. I've listened to I that. I watched it over and over and over again because it was just a moment of such extraordinary, extraordinary human clarity, you know, compassion and insight and artistry. And then that kind of one moment where she sort of drops in a piano chord at the end of you know, she's broken the song in the middle of the song to talk to the audience who is still reeling from the shock of the death of a, of a spiritual leader and this kind of this this that art in some sense in those in those places is more than just entertainment it's more than even more than consolation it's somehow it can capture the essence of that of that insight into the world that we're looking for Nina Simone is an extraordinary example, and at that very painful time, that that particular constant, uh, I remember there was a song, it was a medley, and the second one was, I Ain't Got No, was the second part of the medley, but I remember just being overwhelmed mm. as I first listened to it. A Love Supreme yeah. by John Coltrane has always taken it, me It's to transcendental places. in some way, uh, yeah. But there are... Uh, and uh, I worked on a film. I'm a, from Detroit, but I worked on a film as a producer with several others uh, mm. called Amazing Grace, which was Aretha Franklin's recording a live album in a church in Los Angeles. And I, I don't necessarily adhere to any particular religion, but I'm often asked, where did you find the mm. Holy Spirit? And I said, in James Brown's feet dancing, in Aretha's voice, in Jimi Hendrix's guitar, in John Coltrane's horn, in Bob Dylan's lyrics, and in Marvin Gaye's mm -hmm. social conscience in mm -hmm. everything he composed. And so I, I do feel as uh, how people like, there's a gentleman, late Sidney Finkelstein, wrote books about uh, how music conveys feeling that are extremely powerful. Howard Thurman wrote a book mm. called Deep River mm. about the Negro spirituals. Um, James H. Cohn, The Spirituals and the Blues. Uh, these, there's, there, uh, what was the man's name? Lewis and There's Mind mm. in This Music. Uh, uh, it's a book about John Coltrane and spirituality. There's, uh, there, what I guess I would say is there's a, a latent curriculum. Mm. There are clues. I'm working with a woman who's been a guest on this podcast. Mm. Now. Her name is Christine Passarella. We're making a course, a video course. Hopefully we'll record it at his childhood home in North Carolina. Right. It's called Fantastic. Kids for Coltrane. And, uh, and I'm... I'm Trying out, I have an eleven-year-old and nine-year-old yeah. daughter, and I'm trying using them with Christine to kind of tune up the. There's, there's one of those very famous. I mean, I th I just think that's wonderful. Taking you know, taking that ability to kids and getting them to to engage very early in that. I think that you know the, that experiment in in Chile, um, which I think it was Chavez who who kind of put it together, the, the kind of orchestra that he brought together and, and brought basically the kids out of the favelas to to comp, to teach them music and to teach them the kind of beauty of music, I think is, you know, it's a, it's another wonderful component of, 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 of education that, you know, it's... it's yeah. There's a wonderful uh, YouTube video I want to share with you and with our audience. David Byrne has... Uh, built a play called American Utopia, which in some ways is quite sarcastic around the themes that you and I have talked about. And towards the end of the play, he walks out to pre-announce one of the last songs, and he said, I wrote this song called Everybody's Coming to My House, mm. kind of cynically, about, you know, like a false resolution party or whatever. And he said, and then we performed in Detroit, in a children's mm -hmm. music group that attended 
went home and worked on that song. And then they invited me when I came back to Detroit to mm -hmm. come hear them perform. And they warmed my heart and my cynicism completely yeah. dissipated about a song I wrote. Fantastic. Sarcastically yeah. and cynically. <laughs> and, uh, and there's a YouTube video mm. of everything's coming to my house, both the rehearsals of the group and then what became the I'd love to, I'd love to that see that. I mean, I found, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that supported me, and I, I found this actually with my playwriting as well, that uh, I always have to know what the score is, what the musical score is before I know how to write the play. And and when I was writing, when I was writing Post Grace, actually, I, you know, I, I, I almost didn't, I almost missed the writing of it sometimes because I, I would go for my inspiration to, to music and, and that, you know, if I knew what the score is for a particular chapter, if I knew what the, what the piece of music was that, that belonged to the thought world of that chapter, then I could write it. Yeah, you, you can feel yeah. what it means before you have to articulate it in words. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. And uh, I think, uh, to me, music can be in a curriculum, an elixir. It can be a, a form of nourishment that complements within e mm. physics or mathematics or social studies because it it resonates yeah. in your spirit as you're trying to formulate what you see in these other lessons. And that, it, like you've talked about, mm. not having that segmented mind, but having that integrated mind. Music is a way of weaving all of the sensitivities yeah. together with the modules of learning. And so I think it, it, that in, you know, I would say Shakespearean plays for once you get a little bit older and the Iliad and the Odyssey and there are a whole yeah, lot definitely. of building blocks that I went to MIT and I went to MIT and I studied, I had to pick two minors. I did the creative writing and I did the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. And I did music and I had a man named John Oliver who was nurturing us and uh, he worked with Cesio Zhao at the Boston Symphony. But he told us, after you've done this for four semesters, you will be able to walk into any restaurant or bookstore and hear mm. a piece of music and know within five years of when it was composed because of the knowledge of music mm. structure that was analytical mm. more than intuitive, but both were very profound. So I think in, in uh, how do you say, I believe the humanities in large breathe a great deal of strength and wisdom into whatever curriculum yeah, I agree. and whatever skills we pursue. And uh, so let me, let me close our conversation today by saying something to you about why I think you and your book, you as an example, more importantly, and your most recent book are so important. The famous philosopher, student of Wittgenstein, Stephen Tolman, wrote a book called Cosmopolis. And he studied the Thirty Years' War and the response to that, and there was a lot of fear in the turmoil at the end of that war, that created the Cartesian Enlightenment. And then he talked about how the Cartesian Enlightenment had tremendous potential for illuminating science. But when it was exported rather rigidly into social mm -hmm. science, it produced fault lines. And he wrote this book around uh, 1984-5, but he did this study from 1630 to the present. And one of the conclusions he came up with, and he had just watched the 60s, which you were talking about, Robert Kennedy, you know, he talked about how people can see the failures, they can see the fault lines, but when things really get frightening, like after Dr. King's death and the riots in the urban cities and yep. uh, the 68 conventions where there was violence in America, at an episode like that, their heart becomes arrested and they lurk back to the familiar rather than push forward. 
And what I see right now on the horizon with the challenge of climate change mm. is that we can't go back. Mm. We can't buy time with nostalgic denial. These fault lines are, are profound and the health and the survival on planet Earth are in the balance. And someone like you is carving a pathway forward and you're recognizing the emotions and you're recognizing the social science and natural science logic, but you're calming people's nerves by providing solutions that fill the void, not by ranting at the despair that everybody already feels. Things have been unmasked and it's a healing time. And I believe you are a very gifted healer. Thank you, Rob. I, I, I really appreciate that. And, 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 and I really hope that the, that the book can do some of, some of that work. Well, I will invite you back to speak. We have a Young Scholars Initiative with over 15,000 people who are members. We'll make sure they see this video podcast or listen to it as an audio. And I'd like to invite you to come back and lecture to them because they're the people that will shoulder the burden and the ones that really need your help. I look forward to that. Thanks for joining me. And I hope we get another chance to talk. I've, I find this delightful and, and very inspiring. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Rob. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing